Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you? I've missed you. It's so good to be home. Let's get to it. Matthew chapter 7 is where we left off, and we're going to pick up at verse 12 as you're finding Matthew chapter 7. As always, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones in the rack of the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that as our gift to you. As you're finding Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read just three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14. Let me just tell you what a joy it was to be in India with, um, with the church there, Robert and I. If you don't know, Robert and I uh, have been in India the last two weeks alongside some missionaries that we uh, became partners with a, a while back through a connection that we have here in the States. And these are South African missionaries. The missionaries are from South Africa, this family. And about 14 years ago, they were sent by their church, a good gospel-centered church in South Africa, to be missionaries in India. And they have planted two churches there. And Robert and I went to do a, a, a conference for this church and this community on the doctrine of Scripture. This is also the missionary and the church, uh, one of the churches that we were at, that Logan, who read our call to worship this morning, Logan Copley, where he served as an interim pastor for about six months uh, last year. And it was such a joy to hear about the good fruit and, and the work that Logan did there. Uh, it, was, it was just really encouraging to hear from this missionary, his perspective, how well Logan served the church, and then... Um, just from the, the folks there, the, the church, the, the folks in India, how grateful they were for, for Logan's ministry. Uh, we are, we're sending a team back to this church here in a, a couple months in May for a week or so, so do be praying for them. And it was also encouraging to see just the health of this, these two small churches in India. India is a nation that is predominantly Hindu and there is all sorts of false idol worship going on, and we were just in the middle of uh, just idolatry and uh, lostness. The population of India is about a billion people, and the land size of the nation of India is about a third the size of the United States. So picture three times the population of the United States in about one-third the size of land. People on top of people, and many, many people lost. But the Lord has his people there, and they're doing great work. And so we'll be sharing more about that in the coming weeks and on our member meeting. I look forward to sharing with you about India a little bit more in depth. But you would be really proud of Robert, too, the way he, I mean, he just did wonderful. He has this wonderful, you know, he has that kind of Lou Rawls vo- voice, you know, and the Indians were just fascinated with it. They just wanted him to talk. They said he sounded like a Hollywood actor. <laughs> so uh, it was really, really encouraging. Well, as Will left off... Uh, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, these last two weeks, we find ourselves in verse 12. And we're at a, at a transition point here in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been working through for the past couple months or so. And Jesus is beginning to kind of put the landing gear down and land this most famous of all sermons. And in verse 12, and then the two verses that follow it, really serve as a, a kind of transition to what Jesus has been saying for these past few chapters. And in fact, verse 12 is probably along with John 3.16, one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible and subsequently also one of the most misunderstood truths of the Bible. So let me read verses 12, 13, and 14 and pray, and then, uh, then we'll work back through it. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, 13, and 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we open your word, we, we come needy and we come empty-handed. There's nothing in us, 
in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to you. And there's, there's no amount of understanding that by ourselves we can hear your words. But in your kindness, you have made your people alive. You've transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your son whom you love. You've given us a new mind. You've given us the mind of Christ. You've put your Holy Spirit in your people. You dwell in us and you illuminate our minds so that we can see and hear and obey your word. You, where we were unable, you have enabled us. So Lord, teach us wonderful things out of your word. And I pray for any unbelievers that are present and surely there are some with a crowd this size. Lord, would you, by your sovereign mercy, draw any unbelievers here to faith in the only true victorious King, Jesus. And I pray you'd do it all for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of the lost. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, verse 12 is this most famous verse here of of all, maybe. Whatever you do... Whatever you would want others to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We know of this as the golden rule. And what this verse serves as, as a kind of transition from what has come before in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and the beginning of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus, remember when we started out looking at the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, we said that Jesus was taking the whole Old Testament And he was, in a sense, condensing it and applying it to the life of a Christian. So many people think that, in fact, they're confused by the Old Testament and think the Old Testament is really sort of picturing a God who's angry and wrathful and it doesn't really have much to do with a a person who lives now, but it's kind of part of our history, so we sort of have to include it, but ah, we don't really really, but now we thank God for the New Testament. That's the way a lot of people wrongly view the Old Testament. In fact, that's one of the reasons why these next six Wednesday nights, we're going to look at the Old Testament. So if you are a type of person who's intimidated by the Old Testament, you should come the next six Wednesday nights for our midweek fellowship. We're going to, we're going to peel it apart and give you better tools to understand and think about the truths of the Old Testament. But what Jesus does is he dispels that false notion, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing us how the Old Testament with its laws and pictures and types of Jesus is all about not a wrathful God who is there to just dispense laws and wrath, but it is all about Jesus. It is about the coming king. And when God has given his law and his way, what he's doing is he's giving his people his holiness. He's giving his people a way to live. So think of the Old Testament. Let me just, let me just summarize the Old Testament, in particular the law, with three statements. The reformers said it this way back in the 1500s. They said that the law shows us what is right. Secondly, the law shows us what is wrong. And thirdly, the law shows us what is needed. Ultimately, we need somebody to fulfill the law for us, who is Jesus. We, we don't need to muster up our own grit, but we need a Savior, a King, a sacrifice, somebody who will do what we cannot do. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament. Not that we need to try harder, but that we are fallen, God is holy, here is his code, his, his, his righteous way of living, which we could never accomplish on our own, but the promise laced throughout the whole Old Testament is there's coming one, there's coming a Messiah, there's coming a servant, there's coming a savior, there's coming, coming a king, all in one, who will not only live that law for you, but then lay down his life as a sacrifice to absorb the wrath that should have been yours, and then raise again in victory over sin and death and give you his spirit so that you are now enabled as his, belie- as his followers to live for him. And that's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that God's way, as God's people, we, because of what God has done for us in Christ, we are now enabled for the rest of our life to live in this way and be a display of his glory to the nation. So what's important for us to understand is that Jesus in verse 12 is not summing up the Sermon on the Mount by saying, here's what it is, boys and girls. You know, here's the golden rule. 
what you would want done to you do to others. In other words, just kind of be a good little boy or girl, Johnny and Susie. Run off, go to Sunday school, get the sticker for memorizing your verse, tuck in your shirt, comb your hair, and be good. That's not the message of the gospel. It's not the message of the Old Testament. It's not the message of the Sermon on the Mount. But that's the way many people take this golden rule. They kind of live by this sort of kind of just general karma, kind of basically do good and God will bless you. But if we read deeper into what Jesus is saying all along in this Sermon on the Mount, he is saying that you can live this way only by trusting in him. In fact, we started this off in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Well, how can our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the people who are better at keeping the law than any of us? The point is, is that Jesus is bringing us intentionally to a point where we don't look within ourselves, but we look outside of ourselves to him, to the one who lived for us, laid down his life, rose again, and now has given us his spirit so that we can progressively follow him. Does that make sense? I'm preaching way better than you guys are responding right now. I can tell you that much right now. It's a two-way street here, right? Okay, this is down, sitting downtown Columbus. We're not just going one way. I'm fired up too, by the way. Anytime, you know me, I came back from Uganda. I had to shake it off for about four weeks over the summer. And I'm, I'm feeling it again, by the way, just fair warning. And so here's a transition. Jesus is not saying you should just generally be a better person and karma will work out for you if you generally treat people better. No, if we read everything that has come before this and we read everything that comes after this in the gospel, we realize that we are in a complete position of inability and before we can do anything horizontally, something of divine sovereign mercy must happen vertically. Jesus must become our king and when that happens, then the grace that we experience vertically bends out into our life horizontally, right? So then, this is, this is, this is the same uh, method. By the way, that was for you, Leah, right there, right there, pound it. This is the same method that Paul uses in his letters, right? So if you read Colossians or you read Ephesians, you see that Paul starts with what happened to you in the gospel, not what you have done if you're a believer. He starts with, in the first few chapters of just about every one of his letters, he starts with the indicative, the truth, the thing that has happened, the thing that has, God has done. God has poured out his wrath on his perfect son so he wouldn't, so Jesus could absorb it, and he made his people alive through the sacrifice of his perfect son. Now, After that indicative, which is the gospel, then comes the imperative. In light of that, this is what you must do. So notice, understand, seeing that order is seeing the gospel, right? The gospel is not do this and then God will be pleased with you. In other words, treat other people well. And then if you do it enough, good enough, God will be, you know, he'll kind of let you in. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this is what God has done to make a people right with himself through the sacrifice and resurrection of his son. And in light of that, if you are trusting in that, that is an indication that God has made you alive. Now live out in this way. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. So then that leads us to verses 13 and 14, which we're going to center on here. Let me read it again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Okay, so what is Jesus saying here? Well, on the surface, it seems very straightforward. And I think it is straightforward, but we need to look at it a little bit more deeply. There's two gates. There's two roads. One is wide, and it leads to destruction. One is narrow, and it leads to life. And specifically, Jesus says that of this narrow way, that it is hard. 
this way that leads to life is hard. Now, let's admit that this runs a little bit contrary to what maybe many of us have heard in kind of what I would call an easy believism American Christian culture. That if, you know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and, you know, just come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. That's, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the way, this narrow way is hard and it leads to life and those who find it are few. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, I think we have two options. Either, one, one option is, is that he's saying that God is holy and that we're not. And boys and girls, we've got a lot, a lot of work to do to get right with God. And it's hard. So cinch up your pants, lace up your boots, put your work belt on and your hard hat, and go to work and try harder and do better. Well, we know that's not the message of the gospel, right? I mean, I just spent 15 minutes telling you that's not it. And we know that because we read our Bible. We know that this cannot be what Jesus means because it contradicts the rest of the Bible. It contradicts what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what Jesus means here when he says that the way is hard that leads to life is not tighten up your belt, put your hard hat on, get your lunch pail, and go to work to try and make yourself right with God. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that the way to life starts with death. It starts with, of course, Jesus' death on the cross, and it starts with us dying to ourselves. Well, let me just read what the scriptures say about this. Let me just read. In fact, I, now, you guys are at a disadvantage because two things happened when we had two eight-hour flights um, going to uh, India, eight-hour flight from Atlanta to Paris, Paris to Mumbai, and then coming back, two eight-hour flights, and uh, Robert and I, uh, we, we just about spent Valentine's Day together in Paris, which, <laughs> which our wives were thrilled about. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you're at a disadvantage because on those two eight-hour flights, I listened to John Piper's sermons and read the Puritans. And so, uh, and one thing Piper said is he said, don't be one of those young preachers who just references God's word and doesn't read it. Read the Bible to your people. Yes, sir, Johnny Piper, sir. So here we go. I'm going to read some scriptures to you. John 10, listen to this, John 10, where Jesus is what Robert read from earlier, a, little, a few verses before John 10, starting in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So what, who is Jesus referring to when he says that this gate is, who's the gate that we're reading about in Matthew chapter 7? It's Jesus. I'm the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Then if we flip a few chapters over in John chapter 14, verse 6, this definitive of all statements, Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is not leaving us in doubt as to what or who this narrow gate is. He is saying it is me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles have this same testimony. Acts 4, verse 12, says that there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And so Jesus is this gate, and access to this gate is our own death, dying to ourselves, spiritually speaking, you understand. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And now the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans chapter 6. This is a chapter, oh, you know how I love Romans. Romans chapter 6, listen to this. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, listen to what Paul is saying, the state of the Christian is who has been made alive by God through his sovereign grace. Listen to how Paul describes the life of the Christian. He describes it through death to their former self. So, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Romans 6, 1, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So what Paul is saying there, he's actually teaching about water baptism and he's saying that when we are baptized, that is a picture, that is an outward expression of what has happened to us in our new birth, in our new life. That Jesus on the cross, Jesus lived a perfect life as God in the flesh, laid down his perfect life on the cross to bear the wrath of God the Father. And because Jesus is not just a perfect man, but because he's also the eternally holy second person of the Trinity, holy God in the flesh, he has enough holiness and a righteousness to atone for all of the sin for all of the people who would ever turn and trust in him. And so Jesus lays down his perfect life on the cross, bears God's wrath, satisfies it, and then rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And because he is victorious over sin and death, he can call people to life. And that's the very thing that he does for his people. He makes dead hearts alive. And when we get in those baptismal waters and we celebrate the gospel, that's the very thing that we are proclaiming. It's not just some strange Christian ritual that we've been doing for 2,000 years, it is a display of the very gospel itself. We are saying when we go down into the water, not merely that we need to be cleaned, but we are saying that we are dead. The floodwaters of God's judgment have come down not on us, but on Jesus who died for us, and we are dying to our old self in Christ. And because Jesus is victorious and holy and perfect and rises again, we who are in him by faith and repentance rise also. That's what we are saying. And that's what Paul is saying. That's the narrow road. That life is accessed by death. Death of Jesus on the cross to atone for sin and us dying to ourselves so that we might rise again in life with Jesus. And then Jesus says this in Luke 9, starting in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone, and I think this is just summarizing what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 12 about this way being hard. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus is saying that enter by this narrow way, this pinpoint, this one way, which is me. And the, the entry point to that is dying to yourself and being made alive by God, which is grace. So what's the main point of this text? I think the main point of this text is this, and we'll have it on the screen. It is simply that Jesus is the only way, and to live in him means dying to yourself. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the perfect holy son of God, is the only way to be made right with a holy God, and to live in him, to be made alive by him, means that you are dead to yourself. 
Now, I told you I read a bunch of Puritans, and here's what the Puritans would do in their sermons. And they were much longer than my sermons, so count yourself chronologically blessed. Easy now, killer, easy. I mean, they would preach for like two hours, so I don't even want to hear it. They would preach, their, their sermons were broken down into three sections. They would look at a text, and they would establish, this is what the doctrine is out of this text. And then they would say, these are the possible objections to this, and then let's apply it to our lives. It's kind of always those three parts, doctrine, objections, and they called it use, you know, like the usefulness of the text. Doctrine, objections, application. So let's look at a couple potential objections to this one great truth that Jesus is the only way, and to live in him means dying to yourself. One objection I think all of us have heard and even maybe wrestled with in our own hearts is that how can Jesus be the only way? Is that not somehow unkind or unloving of God to make just one way. If God truly is merciful and benevolent, can't he just kind of understand that people are trying hard and, you know, these best efforts of humanity around the globe? And Well, that presupposes the goodness or the innocence of humanity. And we clearly, I mean, if you just live with yourself honestly for more than a couple minutes, you realize just kind of how naturally wicked we are. And we also see the testimony of Scripture that none are righteous. No, not one. There are no, don't make me do it. Don't make me do my Mexican food analogy, right? About how there are only two types of Mexican food. There's a tortilla and it's either got chicken or beef in it, right? That's all you got. Likewise, there are only two types of people, wicked people and redeemed people. And you say, Brad, wait a minute. No, I know the guy, my mailman, he's a pretty good guy. He's not a Christian, but he's a pretty good guy. Nobody at their heart is a pretty good guy. Let me explain this to you. Now, now granted, not everybody's as bad as they could be. Thank, thank goodness not everybody's terrorists flying planes into a building or doing wicked things. But at our core, when we say that we are lost and sinful, what we are saying is not that we are as bad or as wicked as it is possible for a human to be. What we are saying is, is that there's nothing in us that could commend us before a holy creator God. So I've done this illustration for you before. Picture a young man who is adopted by some parents from birth. And they give him every privilege Right? They, 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 they rescued him out of some horrible situation and they raise him up in this wonderful, loving home. They give him every privilege, every great educational opportunity. He goes off to some Ivy League school. He gets a degree in finance and he goes and he starts to earn a whole bunch of money on Wall Street as a banker. And with this money, he starts to do wonderful, quote, good things, right? But he never... Even once he left home, he never even answers his parents' calls. He doesn't, he doesn't even acknowledge them. So all the benefit that they gave him, all the ways that they poured out their love to him, he completely disregards them and now does all of these good things. Wouldn't that sort of color his good things? We wouldn't say this guy's necessarily good. We would say there's something sort of selfish and self-absorbed about this guy because he, all of his good stuff is tainted because he can't acknowledge the source of his goodness, which is his parents' love, right? Well, on an infinitesimally greater scale, people who do not trust in the fountain of life and goodness, which is God, no matter how seemingly good they are, are at their core rebelling against their creator God. And so there is no good humanity. And Jesus then comes and is the only way. And we may ask, well, can't we just, God, people that are trying hard, well, if we made it kind of based on not Jesus, but on just relative human goodness, where's the cutoff? When is good good enough? You see, Christianity is the only world view that is actually realistic about the human condition. We are never able to be good enough. We are unable and we need God to give us what he requires of us. And so the message of Jesus being the only way is not restrictive. It is actually pure grace. God does what he requires of us in the cross of Christ. 
And your, your objection may be, well, what about all these people who haven't heard about Jesus? Friends, exactly, right? Exactly. What about all those people? What, what, what are we doing? Like, are we just going to be grumpy American conservative Christians who are mad because the next president of the United States might be Trump or Hillary? And that's just as far as the truth of the Bible has worked itself into us, just a conservative grumpiness? What about these people? God in his sovereign grace has determined to create a world, allow it to fall, rescue a great number of people from the fallen humanity, and through the people that he redeems, send people out into dark places so that through them God might show himself to these people. What about these people? What about them? We need to be a church that is radically centered on the sending of the gospel to places all around this world. To India, where Robert and I were at this river in Nasik, India, in north central India, where it is a polluted, it looks, like a, it looks like a sewer line. And it's one of the 12 holy sites in India where people go and get in this river once a year and they f- believe Wrongly, obviously, that if they bathe themselves in this sewer water of a river, that their sins will be washed away. And God has, by his sovereign grace, opened our eyes to his beauty and grace. And what are we doing about that? It's not to say that everybody needs to be a missionary to India or Kosovo like Caleb and Leah, but it means to... It needs to be that all of us, I love that picture, that we all need to hold the rope. We all need to care deeply about what God is doing in this world, and we need to be radically gospel mission-centered. How can Jesus be the only way? It is God's grace that Jesus is the only way. He's making it clear, and he has determined to make his people the mouthpiece of this only way. So we need to stop being self-absorbed, grumpy Christians. I take your silence as conviction. Amen. Another objection is, why did God have to do it this way? Was it really necessary to create a world that he would allow to fall? And then did he really need to rescue this world through the gory, bloody, horrific death of his son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God on the cross. I mean, why did he have to do it this way? It just seems kind of, ugh. Well, first, the first thing I want to do with that question is I want to sympathize with it. I understand it. But I also want to just gently but forcefully challenge it. Who are we really? Who are we? We are people that have been on this earth this little globe that has been spinning around the sun perfectly for thousands and thousands of years. But we've lived on this earth for 40 or 50 or 60 years, and we've got it figured out. And you know, I don't know why God would do it this way. I mean, come on, just think of the, the prideful arrogance of that. That's kind of what's going on at the end of Job where Job questions God and God appears to him in a whirlwind and he gives him like the, he gives him the motivational speech of all motivational speeches. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm paraphrasing right now. (laughs) Brace yourself like a man, Job. Where were you when I hung the stars in the farthest galaxy? Where were you when I created all that is? Where were you when I spoke? Where were you when I put a hook in the great fish's mouth and drug it from one end of the sea to the next. Where were you, O man of dust, that I made out of nothing? I'm not saying that to say that we can't question God or wrestle with the deep mysteries of the universe, but let's just enter into those questions with a little bit of humility, which, let's just confess, Americans are terrible at. Why is it this way? Because I'm an expert. I've been alive for 45 years. Years, God. (laughs) Listen to Ephesians 1. 
and listen to the fact that God has had a plan. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign providential plan that he has established in eternity past for the praise of his glorious grace, right? When you wonder about why things are the way they are, why would God let this happen? Why does it have to be this way? Let this text put steel in your spine. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. So before he even made the world, he's already enacting a plan of redemption, which means that he knew that things were going to go south. And he planned for it. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. And Paul's going to repeat that a few more times in this text. Why has God done what he's done? Why has he allowed things to happen the way they happen? Why does human history shake out the way it shakes out? Because God has deemed for it to be so for the display of his glorious grace. Everything happens for the display of his glorious grace. In some way, God is able to take even the worst and most tragic and most horrific of events and bend it and move it around and over the course of his plan, bring it about for his good. And you say, well, how can, you know, you don't know how bad my my bad thing is. How could he do that with my bad thing? Well, he did that with the worst thing that ever happened, which was the crucifixion of his son. And he works everything for the glory of his grace. Okay, so there's our objections. Now let's end very briefly with some use, some application. What should we take away from this truth? One, easy easy believism is a false gospel. This gospel that much of American churches are built on that presents Jesus as a kind of operating system, just a new thing, a new option to download to make the system of your life run a little bit better is false. Jesus is not something that we add to. He he is somebody that we must die to our former way and follow completely. Easy believism, this nominal Christianity, and what do we mean by nominal? We mean in name only, is a false gospel, and it will not save, and it is perpetuated, and it is continued by, I think, pastors who just want large churches, and so they tell people what they want to hear for the sake of growing a church, and they just put out this false easy believism to just gather a crowd and make make themselves feel better about how many people they have coming to their church. It is false, but let's not just put it off on you know, people that don't get the gospel, let's also realize that we are prone to this false gospel of easy believism. I think people who understand the biblical gospel can be vulnerable to this as well. Nominal Christians are not the only ones prone to this. So are Christians who understand grace. And what do I mean by this? I think that some of us, when we heard the gospel for the first time, because we spent all of our years trying to make ourselves right with God, and when we heard the gospel for the first time truly, and we realized that it was all grace, it was so beautiful and so freeing to us that we ran to it and we just embraced it. But we've never then allowed that gospel that justified us also be a gospel that empowers us to sanctification. So I think it is possible for Bible-believing Christians to emphasize the free grace of justification in Christ so much that they miss the imperatives that come after that of sanctification. Let me read to you from Titus chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, Paul puts it this way. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
So in other words, it's free grace. It's appeared. You didn't do it. You didn't ask for it. It just came. Then verse 12, training them, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the gospel that saves, the grace that saves, empowers us to die to ourselves in ever-increasing measure for the rest of our lives. So if you're a young guy and, and you think that you can just kind of continue to do all the foolish things that you did just because you, you know, went to hear Louis Giglio preach at Passion, and you just love that message, which is a wonderful message, but now we can just continue to live the way that you've lived before, you're wrong. It's not the gospel road. And we could fill in all sorts of applications for us our own lives. Easy believism is a false gospel. Secondly, this means that life is not ultimately about us. Think about it. If God is sovereign and he could have arranged the universe however he wanted to, and he has arranged the universe in such a way that the world that he creates, he allows to fall so that he might redeem that world out of its fallen state through the perfect work of his son on the cross. Just picturing that predetermined plan of God is radically God-centered. It is a radically God-centered view of existence, and it's a biblical one. And so when we see that, we are freed from thinking that God is there for us and that now God's goodness to us depends on whether or not everything kind of goes okay in our lives. I'm a collector of bobbleheads. I've got a Spurgeon bobblehead. I've got a Winston Churchill bobblehead. I've got a Vince Lombardi bobblehead, greatest Italian-American to ever live. Um, I've got an Allen Iverson bobblehead. I love the guy. I don't know why I don't. I just think he was gritty and tough. He was a basketball player that got in some trouble, but I just love him. And just recently, I ordered a Nicholas Copernicus bobblehead. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish scientist back during the time of the Reformation in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And before Copernicus, people believed that the sun rotated around the earth. But our boy Nick said, no, no, wait a minute. I think actually... It's the earth that rotates around the sun. And he was scorned as a heretic. They said, oh my gosh, this guy's, I mean, he almost burned this guy at the stake. Turns out, our boy Nick was right. And now his, his thoughts are called the Copernican Revolution. When mankind realized that we are not the center of the universe. And when we understand the gospel, it's like a personal Copernican revolution for all of us. When we realize that God is not there for us, we are there for him. And we must die to ourselves and live for him. And life is not about us. Which then leads us to truth number three or application number three. That realizing this actually results Not in less joy, but in more joy, right? Because when is enough self-glory enough? There's just that, there's just something about it, isn't it? Like when we live for ourselves and we live for comfort and we live for God to bless us, it's never enough, right? It's never enough. There's something about our flesh that when we give into it, it is addicted to praise and adulation and comfort and the building of self-esteem and it's never enough. But when we walk the hard road of the gospel, die to ourselves, and live to Christ, realize that it's all about him, it frees us from this lesser joy and releases us to find our joy in God. And then finally and fourthly, walking this road is a community project. We are are all prone to self-deception and to justifying ways to take this wide and easy road. 
we're all prone, we're all blind. We all have blind spots, which means there's spots in our spiritual vision which we cannot see. We are blind to them. That's why we need one another. That's why you got to get to know somebody in the aisle or the pew or in this room. You got to you got to be part of a church, man. I mean, come on. How do you how can you live this life? How can we live this life without rolling up our sleeves, putting down our silly little religious faces and being honest with one another? Listen to Colossians 3 verse 16 and 17 and we'll end on this. Paul writes this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another. Admonishing one another. Hey man, don't, 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 don't go that way. Like that, that's, that's, that, that's, that's the easy way to destruction. Come on, come back, come back over here. Come on, come back over here. Let's walk this. And, and to have the type of humility to live in, a, in like a little, a little pot of soil called the local church where, where verse 16 is a reality. Friends, this is, the most, like, this is the most beautiful place on earth. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What would that look like among us if we rolled up our sleeves and put down our religious faces and we insisted that collectively together we try and live that way? Friends, that is the narrow road, living together in that way with this radical God-centeredness, knowing that therein lies our joy. That is a community effort. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German martyr who in the mid-1900s was a seminary professor here in the United States. He had come from his native Germany to teach at a seminary in the United States, I believe in upstate New York. And as he saw the clouds, the storm clouds rising in Europe, and he saw his native Germany beginning to fall to this demonic dictator named Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer left the comfort of his cushy seminary professor job in the United States and went back to Germany in the mid-1900s, in the mid-1930s, to start the underground church in Germany. He actually was thrown in prison because he was uh, against Hitler. And two weeks before the end of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at 39 years of age, was killed, was hung by the Nazis in a prison camp there in Germany. Bonhoeffer wrote many wonderful things about the Christian life. But the one sentence that Bonhoeffer wrote in his cost of discipleship is a word, a sentence that when I read it for the first time, slayed me. And he said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Friends, that's a wonderful summary of the Christian life. That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 12. That we walk through this gate, this gate where we die to ourselves so that we might live and live abundantly, live in joy, live in true pleasure. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And I'll add parenthetically, so that he might truly live. Let's pray. Father, these are monumental words. Before we run off into singing or responding, I think it would be good for us just to sit and let you speak to us.
Lord, I am so prone to veer off the road to the wide way that leads to destruction. Reset my affections and remind me that the way to life is death. The death of your son Jesus on the cross and his glorious resurrection and ascension where he is now reigning supreme over all creation and my dying to myself so that I can be alive in him. Lord, remind us of that. Lord, if there's a person in this room who came in on that broad and wide path of destruction, Lord, I plead with you by your sovereign mercy that you would open their eyes and draw them to the one true gate, the one true door, Jesus. May they put their hope and faith in him. Lord, I'm not asking them to muster their own good works. I'm asking them to finally look outside of themselves to Jesus. Lord, would you give them the very thing that you require of them, which is eyes to see and a heart to believe, and would you save them? Friend, if that is you, you need to not leave this room today before you speak to somebody that you know to be a Christian. Maybe you, just a moment when the band begins to play, you come down and speak to one of the pastors and pray about turning from yourself and turning in faith to Jesus. Do that. Do that. The rest of us that are already following Jesus, we need to hear this truth again and again to keep us. God preserves us by reminding us of the gospel. So Lord, refresh our hearts in this beautiful truth. May we be satisfied in you and may we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.